Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning we're returning to our series in 1 Timothy called Living as God's Household. Uh, we began the series in the fall uh, in order that we might know what it means to live as God's family, to live as God's household, how we ought to behave as a church. Uh, then we took a two-month break, and we're returning to our series this morning, and we're looking at the topic of um, women in the church and what Paul has to say about this topic. Uh, now, I will say this from the beginning. Because of the complexity of this passage, uh, the sermon will be a bit more teaching-oriented than usual. But I really do ask that with some uh, persistence and discipline that you uh, try to stick with me. Uh, because if we're going to be faithful as a church, uh, faithful to live according to God's word, uh, we need to even study, to consider, to understand the difficult passages of Scripture, even the tough topics. And so um, please do... Uh, with earnest zeal, uh, lend your attention to uh, not only the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, if you're able, I invite you to stand. Why do we stand? Standing is an act of worship. It shows that we receive God's word with reverence for it. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, reading verses 11 to 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in prayer. Father, we ask for your help at this time because it's only by the power of your spirit working uh, to illuminate your word into our either darkened hearts or sometimes uh, dimmed hearts um, that we can hear your voice. And so please do this incredible work, the spiritual work of helping us to understand and to know your word, to follow your word, to trust it. Ultimately, because Lord, you speak to us and you're the God who has condescended and you've revealed yourself to us and you desire us to know you and to know your will, not just for our lives, but how you plan uh, to use this church and how you want to build this church. So give to us listening ears. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, now, upon reading these words uh, in today's passage, it may have provoked a broad range of emotions. Um, I can understand that some might be offended, some might be hurt by these words, uh, others might be confused or cautious, or, or really challenged. I think uh, maybe still there are some who are convicted and convinced uh, by the words you've read, and others of you are affirmed of beliefs that you've kind of held for a long time. But the very fact that uh, a group of people can gather around, read a passage of Scripture, and respond in a variety of different ways really reveals the fact that none of us comes to the Bible neutrally. Right? It's important that we all admit, we're all aware that when you come to the Bible, you come wearing a lens. And the goal isn't to take that lens off because it's impossible to see the world neutrally. It's impossible to see the world neutrally, nor should we try to see it neutrally. The goal for the Christian is actually to have the lens by which we see the world and we see the word and that that lens would come into greater conformity to what God has revealed. 
The goal is that the Holy Spirit would help us to see more clearly in accordance with his truth and what he's revealed rather than our personal biases and our subjectivity. Uh, whether we realize it or not, before we came into this room this morning, uh, we've all been shaped, um, we've all been formed, we've all been fashioned in our perspectives and positions and views on various matters in the scriptures. And so, for example, the type of church you grew up in will have a big shaping factor. Uh, your past experiences, uh, your natural disposition, just the way you're wired, your personality bents, uh, maybe some of your political views, the cultural pressure you face, the company of people you keep around you, the people you hang out with, the relationships you form, all of these form us so that we come to the scriptures and we have a perspective. And in one sense, you can say that it's proper and appropriate for people to have different perspectives. But we as a church, in order to maintain unity, need to land somewhere. And so the question for us is, where do we here at Cornerstone land when it comes to the issue of women's roles in ministry in light of what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2? Now, I just want to say this off the bat. This is not a topical sermon. Now, what does that mean? By that, I mean, uh, I've not chosen to talk about this topic and therefore we will go through all of the Bible to find the supporting passages to try to prove my point. Uh, this sermon is not topical. This sermon is expository. And what that means is, uh, we've been in First Timothy, and so I didn't have an agenda in choosing this passage. It's just a passage that comes up next. And so rather than considering the topic and looking for all of Scripture to say, what does it have to say about the topic? We're looking at First Timothy 2, and we're saying, well, what does this mean? And what does Paul mean when he writes this and gives it to us? I begin there because I understand and recognize uh, that you may have questions or you may have concerns um, upon some of the things you hear uh, that I won't be able to have time to address and to answer. Um, but I'll do my best to explain 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 to you all. If you are sincerely interested in learning, if you actually want to dive deeper into this topic to know what scripture says about it, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, uh, had a study report on this in 2017. They formed what's called an ad interim committee, and they came up with a study report entitled Women Serving in the Ministry of the Church. And I think this would be an incredibly helpful resource for you. In fact, I'm going to send it out after service uh, to you all so that those who are interested can take a look at this. I don't want to overload you because I know that uh, when you Google things, you, can, you will get owned with uh, many, many different kinds of links to videos and articles and blogs and books and podcasts and sermons. Uh, so I'll just send you one and you can start there. If you have further questions, please always feel free to email me or uh, Pastor Isaac or any of our elders about this. Um, so as we get into our passage, uh, let me just also say two more words, two, two things we need to be mindful of uh, if we're really seriously and honestly going to engage with this passage. And the first is this, uh, we need to be mindful not to read all of our modern concerns into these five verses. And so what I mean about that is Paul is writing to an audience 2,000 years ago. And so all of the current cultural discussions that are going on about gender, like that's not in Paul's mind. He's not thinking through the lenses we are. So uh, our concerns today aren't necessarily concerns he's addressing. Our fears aren't his fears. Our battles aren't his battles. And so you just need to be mindful to not read our current cultural discussion into 1 Timothy chapter 2. The second thing to be mindful of is this. Uh, also, don't ignore this passage's relevance for Christians and churches in the present. 
Sometimes there's a temptation to say, well, Paul was writing specifically to Timothy about this specific church called Ephesus, specifically 2,000 years ago, and therefore can't mean anything to us. We need to be careful to not make that leap and assumption, because I don't believe that this passage only applies to the Ephesian church. I think it applies to Cornerstone Church today, as well as all the other churches. Because remember, Paul wrote this in his letter. He wrote in chapter 3, verse 15. He said, uh, this is kind of his thesis, his summary of the letter. He says, um, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul doesn't say, so you may know how you guys specifically in your current cultural moment can live. He says, how one, a Christian ought to live in God's household, in God's family. And so what's recorded for us in this letter is God's blueprint, his design for the church not just for the church in Ephesus, but for the churches everywhere and every place that we might learn how to live properly in God's family. And so with that, let's look at our text beginning with verses 11 and 12. Paul writes these words, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, some people, the first thing kind of that you look at is, is that little phrase there, I do not permit a woman to teach. I don't permit. And it sounds kind of like Paul's giving his subjective opinion, what he thinks. And as a result, some people say, well, this is clearly Paul's opinion. He's admitting it's his opinion. Therefore, it's not authoritative. It's not relevant to us. Paul is personally biased because he's a man of his culture, right? He's a man of 2,000 years ago. And in that culture, uh, the cultural norms were to disdain women or to look down on women. And if you end up there, I just want to say, actually, I think that's very incorrect uh, for two reasons. One, when Paul began the letter in 1 Timothy 1, this is how he began it. In verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Paul begins by saying this, I am writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing as an authorized messenger of Jesus. And therefore, 1 Timothy is not like Paul's personal Twitter account where he's just spewing off and writing his opinions and expressing his opinions for us. Paul's saying, what I'm writing to you, I'm writing as an authorized messenger of Jesus. And so 1 Timothy is not really Paul's letter to Timothy. It's what God wants to say to Timothy through Paul. And so if 1 Timothy was a social media account, it'd have that blue check mark. It'd say, this is verified. This is God's word. And so it's not a man's mere personal opinion. He says it actually a few verses earlier when he reiterates himself in chapter two, verse seven, he says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. So Paul says, this is not my subjective opinion. This is God speaking with his authority. The second thing you need to be careful of is to assume, oh, Paul was a man of his time, so he was biased against women. Because if you've read the scriptures at all, particularly Paul's epistles, you know that he loved and respected women. In all of his letters, it's very clear that he's encouraging women to use their gifts in the church. He praises women and commends them who serve the Lord. He worked with, he worked alongside many godly women in the ministry of the gospel. And so, some who say, oh, Paul is just in line with the cultural and societal norms of the day are completely wrong. Paul is actually countercultural. He's not going according to it. Take, for example, you read Romans chapter 16. Romans 16 is the last verse of, or last chapter of the book of Romans. And he writes this in his personal greetings. Romans 16, he writes in verses one to four. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
I commend her to you. She is a servant of the church at Sencria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, it's really interesting. I point this out because the very first two names Paul lists in his personal greetings are women, Phoebe and Prisca or Priscilla. But not only that, when he talks about the women, he highlights their involvement in the church. He commends them for their ministry labors. And as he did so, he's saying they deserve to be welcomed. They deserve to be given thanks for to God. Now, why am I making a point of this? Because we can't glance by this too quickly. We need to understand how incredible this is. Paul loved having sisters in Christ as his co-laborers and fellow workers in ministry. Paul didn't regret it. Paul didn't despise it. Paul didn't merely put up with it or tolerate it. Paul cherished his female co-workers in the Lord. He valued them. He needed them. So women in the church, according to Paul, aren't second-class citizens. They're not like throw pillows on your couch that look nice but are ultimately unuseful. These women were pivotal in the early church. And the very fact that scripture records their names for you to remember 2,000 years later shows how critical they were to advance of the gospel. So I want to say this then, sisters in Christ, be encouraged, be inspired. This is worthy of emulation and imitation. Because the family of God needs your gifts. You are uniquely gifted as a member in God's household to contribute your gifts. So we need you to serve and edify the body so that we can give God thanks for you. Just as women were active in the ministry of Jesus, they were the first to see his resurrection and tell others about it. Just as women were active in the ministry of Apostle Paul and all the other apostles, so too women should be active in the ministry of the church today. The biblical evidence of this is clear. Paul celebrated the ministry work that women did. Now, I take time to establish that because that should help us have a little confidence when we come to what Paul says next to understand he's not being contradictory or inconsistent. When he goes on to write in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, where does your attention automatically go? To what word do you just seem to zero in on? And it's probably the word submissiveness, right? For 21st century people, uh, the word submissive, um, even telling us to, or the women to learn quietly, it seems oppressive, it seems domineering, it seems demeaning. But again, understand the countercultural thing that Paul is saying, because um, he, here's the interesting thing. Um, we have what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, where we you know, kind of look back at history and we kind of are snobs about it. But we have to understand, actually, no, Paul is right. What Paul wrote here was incredibly uplifting and liberating for women. Because who was Paul? Paul was a first century Jew. And in the Jewish culture, women were not encouraged to learn. In fact, some segments of Judaism said that it was sinful for a woman to learn scripture. You look at the temple setup, women weren't even allowed into certain parts of the temple. So they didn't have the same access. There were many more barriers and boundaries for women to cross. That's the cultural scene. And against that, what does Paul say? Let a woman learn. 
And so what he writes is actually meant to be empowering and encouraging. And it's ironic. There's this great irony here because a modern reader reads this verse and we think, Paul saying women should learn with submissiveness. And then the ancient reader is feeling equally offended because they're going, Paul saying women should learn. It's clear. Paul commended women to learn. But he does add that little adjective to learn quietly. And often people interpret quietly to mean silence. Like when a parent, you know, snaps at their child. Quiet. They mean shut up, be silent. But that's not what Paul means here, clearly. In the verses right above this, still in chapter two, but in verse two, Paul is encouraging Christians to pray. And he says, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, when Paul said live a quiet life, does he mean live a silent life, live a life without talking? Clearly, that's not what he means. He means live a life of respect where you're respectfully not talking so you can respectfully listen to another person talk. And that's what what quiet means. It doesn't mean silence. It means respectfully letting someone else talk and listening to them, not being disruptive, not causing commotion. Um, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, just to give you some more examples of this, he writes, um, but we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. So what does he mean? Live quietly, mind your own affairs. He means don't interrupt and meddle in people's life. Be, uh, live in a respectable manner. Get, don't cause commotions. 2 Thessalonians 3, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now, such persons we command encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul's saying, don't be busybodies. Don't be a disturbance, a disruption. Work quietly, work without disrupting. So this is what Paul means. He's saying in the context of, in the chapter two, the context is corporate worship. In the context of worship, women, you should come and learn and hear the word of God, but you should remain respectful and listen. Why? Because you are respecting the authority of God's word. You're not rebelling against it. You're not rejecting it, but you're respecting it. And so Paul continues that chain uh, of thought because he he then says, um, with all submissiveness. He's saying, you're not submitting to all men. That's not what this passage is about. You're submitting to the word of God. The the thing is, our modern sensibilities tell us to hear a word like um, submissive or quiet and to be triggered by them. Um, But if you simply take away the words and you keep the concept, you actually realize that this concept is all throughout the Bible and it's praised and it's celebrated. So let me give you an example. Um, Pastor Isaac preached two weeks ago on Luke chapter 10. It's a wonderful story. Mary and Martha, you remember the story? Mary and Martha, and if you don't remember the story, uh, Jesus has two friends, Mary and Martha, the sisters, and he goes to visit them. And we're told uh, that Martha is distracted with much serving, um, but her sister Mary is preoccupied with something else. And we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, these words. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now what's happening here? Sitting at the feet of somebody is a symbol of submission, right? Disciples sat at the feet of their rabbis. And so when Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, she is submitting to his teaching. She's submitting to his authority. And while submitting, what does it say that she was doing? She was listening. She was learning. She was receiving. And as she sat at the feet of Jesus, do you imagine her interrupting Jesus, raising her hand, saying, well, I don't know, uh, you know, shaking her head. No, she was listening 
respectfully, listening quietly, not interrupting. She was not challenging. And as a result of what she did, Jesus says at the end of that, verse 42, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What is the good portion Mary chose? Mary chose to learn quietly from the feet of Jesus with all submissiveness. And so my point is, when you get to 1 Timothy 2, verse 11, it's not really something new. It's just an application of the Mary principle to women in the church. Paul is speaking to women who were generally discouraged from learning, and he's actually extending a countercultural invitation. He's saying to the women in the church, actually, you should come and hear God's word preached. You should be a diligent student of God's word. You should choose the good portion. You should actually grow in your Bible knowledge and grow in your theological precision. Women, you should actually think deep and lofty thoughts of God. You should seek and hunger to know him more. There is no place in Paul's mind where he had the thought, oh, while the preaching is going on, women should be in the kitchen making lunch. He had no thought that while the service is going on, women should be quarantined in the toddler room to take care of the children. Paul had no thought that women shouldn't actually learn in the church, but go home and just be discipled by your husbands. Paul wanted the women right there in his congregation, right there in the church with the other men coming to sit at the feet of Jesus, learning quietly, submitting to the preached word. And do you know why Paul wanted this? Why he recommends it? Because what happens when we hear the word of Christ preached? Well, listen to what Paul writes to men and women in Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. For what purpose? So that you might teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. He's saying, men and women, all of you, receive God's word and let it dwell in you richly. And then he says a word that might kind of make you go, huh. He says, what happens as men and women receive the word? You teach one another. You admonish one another in all wisdom. Paul's vision of the household of God is that brothers and sisters in Christ are receiving the word together and the word is dwelling in them and they're becoming like the blessed man who's planted by streams of living water. And as a result of that, they are blessing one another, building one another up, teaching and admonishing one another. And so we shouldn't be afraid that the Bible encourages women to be engaged in word ministry, to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and to share it. Remember Romans 16? Uh, Paul mentioned two women, uh, Phoebe, and the second was Prisca or Priscilla. Uh, Priscilla, if you don't know, is the wife of Aquila. And... Um, in the book of Acts, we're introduced to this, uh, this ministry couple. They were a powerful couple uh, that God sent as a gift to bless the churches at the time. And so we read in Acts 18 um, that there was a man named Apollos, and he uh, ended up in a town called, a city called Ephesus. And this is what we read according to Luke in Acts 18. He says about Apollos, Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what do we know about Apollos? Knowledgeable, capable, eloquent, competent, and yet he still needed to grow. There was something he was lacking. He, he needed to be equipped. Now, God's going to use Apollos in an amazing, great way. He wants to sharpen Apollos to be a great tool. And how does God, in his wisdom, decide to do that? If you keep reading in Acts 18, verse 26, he, Apollos, began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. 
God in his wisdom chose to use a woman and her husband to explain, to train, to equip Apollos. It's very interesting. And you know what? Apollos wasn't afraid to receive it. He was ministered to by the teaching ministry of this wife and her husband, and he was a better servant as a result of it. And so I do want to challenge the men in this room and just say this. Don't be afraid. Don't be unsettled. Don't be intimidated to learn from the wonderfully gifted and godly women in our church. If the word of Christ is dwelling in them richly, let them live out Colossians 3.16 to teach and to admonish one another in love. Yeah, I really think if you want a vision for the church, this is it. Men and women learning God's word together, letting it dwell in them and speaking its truths to one another. Men and women sharing and discussing and instructing and teaching and admonishing and explaining and discipling and reading and receiving and giving and listening to one another so that we might become more like Christ. That's the call for both men and women in the church. The call for men and women here at Cornerstone. That we might be to one another conduits of God's word in every way, channels of his promises and the truth of the scripture to one another in every way to be ministers of the word to one another in every way. That is every way except for one. Because Paul then goes on to make one prohibition in verse 12. Here he writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, if you've surveyed Paul's letters, you know that he believed women were just as competent Women were just as gifted. Women were just as central to gospel ministry. And so knowing that about Paul, you get to this verse and you have one of four choices. One of four choices. Here's the first choice. Reject Paul's words. Paul was a man of his time. Paul was a sexist, a misogynist, a chauvinist. So he's just speaking out of all of his culturally informed opinion. And that means nothing to us because our society is in a different place today. So we need to reject it. That's the first option. The second option is this. Well, Remember, Paul was speaking to the Ephesian context. And in Ephesus, there was uh, a great cult dedicated to the goddess Artemis. And so there was this huge feminist movement. And so in the church of Ephesus, there were these really troublemaking, rowdy women. And so when Paul gives this prohibition, this restriction, he's actually just telling them, these particular women, to be silent and to stop causing issues in the church. That's option two. Option three is this. You take this one verse and... 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, you grip it so tightly that you then reinterpret every other passage in the Bible through this one verse. It doesn't matter what the other passages say about women doing all this ministry. No, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12 trumps all the other verses. That's option three. Here's the fourth option. You affirm all that Paul encourages women to do, all the word ministry they're doing, all the gospel ministry they're doing. You affirm all of that but you draw the one line that Paul himself draws, which is women are not to teach or to exercise authority over a man in the church. And I believe it's this fourth option that's actually the most faithful going forward. Now to understand this, we need to clarify that Paul is not speaking about women not being able to teach any man about anything in any and all circumstances. You can, of course, you should learn from all kinds of women, all kinds of things. We know it's all true. If men never learned from women, we'd be helplessly lost in the world. If men never learned from women, we'd probably still be in the Stone Age. I mean, we need to learn from women, and we do learn from women. So what is Paul talking about here? The context is corporate worship in the church. 
And the teaching and the exercise of authority is referring to the preaching of the word. Why? Because what is preaching? Preaching is the authoritative teaching of God's word to the people of God. So what does Paul have in mind when he gives this restriction? He's saying when the church is gathered for worship, women are not to preach God's word over men. Now, when you hear that, it sounds controversial. But actually, if you think about it a little bit more deeply, um, we need to keep the, the forest in sight and not lose sight of it because we're looking at the tree. And so what do I mean by that? Here's the tree. The tree is the statement. Women should not preach over men in the context of corporate worship. And we get so lost in that we lose sight of the force. What's the force? The force is this. Anybody who isn't qualified, called, and equipped, they shouldn't preach in the context of corporate worship either. And that includes men who aren't called and equipped. Do you get that? When Paul says that women should not preach, he's not saying that all men can and all men should preach either. Because once maleness doesn't qualify you to preach, who is called to preach? The elders of the church. Because the elders of the church are those called to teach and to exercise authority in God's household. Paul actually gets really clear because he makes this distinction. Right after this chapter, uh, we already looked at it, but chapter three is the qualifications of deacons and elders, right? Officers of the church. And if you read the qualifications, a lot of them are, are pretty similar. There's a lot of same character qualifications that deacons and elders should have, except for one. And do you know what that is? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 calls elders that they should be able to teach. So what is Paul doing? Paul is making a distinction even among the officers. And he's saying, listen, yeah, women, you're not permit to teach and exercise the authority of men. Deacons, even you're not qualified and called to preach in the context of the church of God. And the point is this, in God's household, there's a design for how we ought to behave, how the church ought to live as a family of God. And in his design, God gives the responsibility of preaching his word, of authoritatively teaching and handling his word to male-only elders in his church. And this is the responsibility in the family of faith, not just restricted to women, but restricted to all unqualified, uncalled men. And to help us understand this, um, there's an, an author named Courtney Resig who wrote a book called Accidental Feminist. And she has a section in here that I just found really helpful because she's explaining how this works and she likens it to the Old Testament qualification for priest. So just take a listen to what she writes here. I found it very illuminating. She says, uh, Moses restricted the role of priest to one tribe, the Levites. So what if a godly gifted Benjaminite boy dreams of becoming a priest? He can't. God didn't make him a Levite. God had a plan and a purpose for how he wanted his people to function so he would get the most glory and they would get the most joy. Being created as male or female or Benjaminite or Levite is not an occasion for discontent or frustration with God's design. It's a chance to be humbled and then to flourish in how he created you. We get joy when we obey God and function with his, within his intended framework. The same is true for how the local church is meant to be structured. What is she arguing here? She's saying that God has made a design and we are to operate within it. And so the restriction and limitation in the office of elder and thus the role of preaching God's word has nothing to do with a woman's giftedness or her ability or competency or her eloquence. 
There are many women who are far more gifted, able, competent, and eloquent than I am. So then why the restriction? It has to do with the design of the church as a spiritual family. Why? Because the spiritual family of God is actually called to mimic God's design for the earthly family. And in the earthly family, God is called leadership and headship to reside with the husband and the father. Did you notice that when Paul gives his explanation, if you really push him and say, well, why are you saying this? What are you basing that on? Paul grounds his reason, not in some cultural reason, not in some ancient custom. He grounds it in creation. He bases it on the pattern God established in creation before sin entered the world. He bases his reason on the way the world was supposed to be. Paul says in verses 13 and 14, why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What is he saying? He's saying Adam was created first to be the head of his household. And Eve, who was created with equal worth and dignity and honor and significance and value was created with a complementary role. Eve wasn't created merely to mimic Adam. She wasn't created to be a replica of Adam. She wasn't created to be a redundancy of Adam. She was created to be his helper, to lend her unique gifts, to serve in a unique way that only she could so that this first family would flourish. And that's why in the household, Adam was called to exercise authority over Eve. There was nothing special about Adam, nothing significant about Adam. There was nothing damaged or incomplete or deficient about Eve. They were, after all, both created in God's image. But in God's creational design, Adam was created to be the head of the family and thus to assume their leadership, authority, and responsibility. And it makes sense because after Eve eats of the fruit, who does God come looking for? Who does God come after? It's not Eve, it's Adam. He calls Adam out. He interrogates Adam. He holds Adam responsible because that was his role as the head of the family. This is the creational pattern in the family that God's saying it also works itself out in the family of God. And so in the church, it's the elders who are called to preach and to teach and to exercise authority and thus bear the responsibility for the household of faith. You see, friends, when Paul makes this statement, he's not saying that this is a design flaw in the church. He's not saying, unfortunately, because of sin, because of the way the world works, it's only men who can do this. It's not a design flaw in the church. Paul is saying, this is God's design pattern. This is how he intended the world and the church in particular here and the family as shown in Genesis is called to work. And it's going to be hard sometimes to trust God's word. It's going to be hard to submit to his design pattern. But when we understand that we are his church, his household, his family, his body, his bride, we belong to him. When we realize that he who adopted us, he who loved us, he who gave his son for us, saved us and ransomed us, it begins to allow us to begin to trust God's design and his purposes and his intentions over ours. And I love the way Paul ends this passage because he doesn't end the passage in hopelessness and with bad news because he then ends in verse 15, which I'm honest with, with, you know, if I'm honest, first Timothy two is one of the most difficult passages in scriptures. And then this verse is one of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible. Now, you know why we took a two month break between the series. 
But Paul writes in verse 15, this confusing verse. He says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What is going on here? And I'll just make it simple by telling you what I think it means. When Paul was thinking about Adam and Eve, his mind was in Genesis. When he was thinking about um, Eve eating other fruit, he was thinking of Genesis 3 in the fall. And he's lingering kind of on the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. But he doesn't want to end on bad news. He wants to end on good news. And so his mind goes a little bit further in Genesis 3, where you get this great gospel promise. Paul doesn't want to end on the bad news. He wants to end on the good news. And so what does he do? He leads us to Genesis 3.15 that tells us God promising Eve that through her offspring would come the savior of the world who would crush the head of, serpent, of the serpent and defeat sin and death forever. God's saying that he would send into the world salvation through the birthing pains of women throughout history from one generation to another. This is not saying that women are saved as they bear children. It's saying that salvation has come into the world through the birthing pains of women. And God made good on that promise through the birth of Jesus. From we know in Galatians 4, we read, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. That we are saved because the Savior has come into the world through the childbirth. In fact, Paul writes, yet she will be saved through childbearing. But what the ESV leaves out is that in the original Greek, there is a definite article before childbearing. This passage actually literally should read, yet she will be saved through the childbearing. And indeed we are. We are saved through the childbirth, the birth of Jesus Christ come into the world. And it's this good news that unites us as a church that brings together, sustains us, which allows us all to be co-laborers and partners in the gospel. Yes, it's true. There is a specific calling for some to preach the word of God in corporate worship. But dear friends, there is a shared calling for all, men and women, to teach and admonish one another, to edify and encourage one another, to bless and build up one another, to counsel and comfort one another through this word of Christ, the gospel. And so we serve one another. And we walk with one another. We disciple one another. We teach one another and admonish one another that our eyes might be lifted to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, What's happening in the preaching is just one avenue of doing that. But after this 30 minutes, maybe today 40 minutes ends, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly so that you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And in this way, may we live according to God's design as a household that we may continue to enforce and thrive and grow as we fix our eyes on Jesus together.